Father, first we lift up to you the family members of those who have been shot and those who are also injured uh, from this gunman in Texas, Lord, and thank you for the law enforcement that were able to stop him. And we ask that your hand would be upon everything that takes place there, that you would bring those who can provide comfort in the time of mourning, and you could provide, Lord, also healing. I ask that you would heal those who have been injured through this. I know the three police officers have, and there are others, Lord, uh, many others. So, Father, would you please just send the needed help their way. And also our way, Lord, for your word that would be able to really digest it, understand it, make it ours, and let it affect us in a positive way, not only for this life, but preparing us for the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we left off with the Pharisees and the Herodians and Of course, they were making some bad choices. They chose greed, envy, and faithlessness, and stubbornness. And there were two parables, three total, including chapter 21 and 22. The rejection of the father by the two sons that the father asked to go work. The rejection of the son by the wicked tenants where the father sent uh, to the tenants his own son. They killed the son. And also the wedding banquet, the servants were required to go out and get people to fill up the wedding banquet. And the one who invites us to salvation is also the Holy Spirit. In all three of those parables that are told, we know that they rejected the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there were the first of two attacks, and then there was one test where they approached Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they wanted to know whether or not uh, taxes should be paid to Caesar because they thought that would be a divisive issue for the people. And if Jesus said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the people would have turned against him, and Rome would have been for him, making him detestable in the eyes of the people. And so it would appear to be a catch-22 because if Jesus said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, he would have been great in the eyes of the people but been considered a criminal in the eyes of Rome. And so it was a seemingly a no-win situation. And, of course, he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God. But they started this out with this idea of a good teacher. We know that you can't be swayed. And I brought it up last time, this logical fallacy when we argue. And if you look on the Internet, there's this one picture in specific that is on there that lists all of these different fallacies that people use in their arguments in order to persuade. And I told you last time about the ad hominem attack. That's where you don't really address the facts that are before you, but a person immediately jumps to attacking the character to the one they oppose. And they try to downplay that individual morally and characteristically, and therefore it ruins the argument that they're making. But that's a fallacy because it doesn't change the argument. Then there's also the bandwagon fallacy, and the fallacy that I talked about was about climate change. That they say, quote, the consensus of the scientists is climate change is real. And they're trying to use the numbers to justify their position without looking at the facts, whether or not it is true. They are not doing that. They're just saying, well, more people believe this, therefore we should believe it. 
It's kind of like the lemming mentality. Did you guys ever see that little movie going through school where the lemmings were going over the cliffs by the thousands and they were just following each other? Sheep do that too. If sheep are in a pasture, they're walking along a path and one happens to jump, guess what the rest do? They all jump. They just follow along whether or not there's something in the roadway. People have a tendency to do this. Well, I don't want to be outside of the crowd. I want to believe what the crowd is believing. And they say, most people believe this. Therefore, nine out of ten dentists recommend Colgate. What does that mean? That, that means nothing. Does Colgate work or Crest or whatever you're using? You see how they use these fallacies in order to persuade or dissuade an individual and they were trying to gain favor with jesus to trap him is what they were doing oh teacher we know that you're smart you love everybody and you don't get swayed easily and yada 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 and this is the flattery fallacy that you butter somebody up oh i uh, you know i know you're really smart and you have 16 degrees and you know i really trust what you have to say but i have this question What are you doing? You're trying to make the person agreeable to you when you do that. What if you went up to them and said, you know, I think your scholarship is a little suspect, but I have a question for you. What's the person going to think? Well, here comes an attack. And you don't do that when you're trying to use these fallacies to persuade somebody. And again, the flattery fallacy that I read to you last week, it's when an attempt is made to win support for an argument, not by the strength of the argument, but by using flattery on those whom you want to accept your argument. This, this fallacy is often the cause of people getting tricked into doing something they don't really want to do. Who has been to a timeshare presentation? that's exactly what they do in the timeshare presentations and what happens if they spend an hour or an hour and a half with you and you say no the the fangs come out the nails you know they just want to claw at you that type of thing and they tell you how wonderful you are and how you can move to this place once a year it'll be great you just make your reservation and they just go on and they, they just butter you up is what they do you look like you're, you're a world traveler. Is that true? Do you travel around a, a lot? Boy, I'm so excited for you. That's so neat. And, and they just do that. Well, that's what they're doing with Jesus. They're buttering him up in order, in this case, to bring him into a trap, to make him unsuspecting, so to speak. So flattery, this is, when you flatter someone, it's usually something that is excessive that you direct towards them that is untrue or insincere. It's an insincere type of praise or an exaggerated compliment. Something along that line. Why is flattery bad or wrong? Well, it's just simply a lie. And Zechariah chapter 8 verse 16 tells us that that these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. We're not supposed to lie or embellish we're simply supposed to speak our minds and speak the truth secondly it speaks of the impure motives of the one who uses it the one who does has ulterior motives they're after something else and the unsuspecting person the person who has not been trained in the use of fallacies they're easily susceptible 
to a suggestion of some kind just because they have been buttered up. And, of course, Romans twelve nine says love must be sincere and not insincere. It also creates an imbalanced personal view if the person receives it. You think so? You think I look good today? You know, something like that. You, you butter them up and it kind of puffs them up on the inside. And the one who is already prone to pride goes, thank you. I know it. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. It, but the person who is, has a poor self-image of themselves, it kind of lifts them up, makes them feel better. And the suggestion that you give later on convinces them that they need to go your way. That's how it takes place. So it puffs up those who receive it. But what does scripture have to say about flattery? Well, flattery is a sin. Job 32:22, for if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. So we don't want to be really good in flattering somebody else. And then also, the Antichrist uses flattery to corrupt those who do not believe in God during the tribulation period. Daniel 11:32 says, with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. So this guy is going to be the ultimate politician. He's going to come in and, what is the word, schmooze the people who were there, wine and dine them, tell them what a wonderful leader they are, and that he's going to get certain leaders that are going to back him up, and he's going to give them money or power, whatever the case might be, but he's going to do it using flattery. And we don't want to be like the Antichrist. We want to be like Christ. Flattery is used by self-absorbed grumblers and fault finders. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, all the way through verse 18 says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. How many naive people do you think are in the world? Most of, most all of us are naive in some particular area, especially if somebody shows up, they're knowledgeable about something, and they flatter you, you're convinced right away, especially if they're personable. You'll say, oh, okay. oh that's what, it was so nice to meet you. And you, you talk to them and you just get along. Damn, that person was so nice. Like that is, is how we perceive somebody who comes along and uses this flattery, the people who are really good at it. God's people should never use flattery. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. You know we never use flattery. Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So apparently the false teachers who were there, they would flatter individuals in order to get their money. And that's normally the case. And flattery destroys. Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates those it hurts. And a flattering mouth works ruin. God has a lot to say about flattery and those who receive flattery are tested by it proverbs 27 verse 21 the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold but a man is tested by the praises he receives because we might start believing it 
And if we start believing what somebody says about us and we don't look at what the Bible says, there are none righteous. No, not one. All have gone astray. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if we, if we have that perspective, then we get the grace of God. God says, I know. That's okay. I love you anyhow. And I'm going to give you a new body and eternal life. It's all good. If we're willing to admit, yeah, we're not so good. And he goes, perfect. That is exactly where you need to be. Now, praise is specific to action. Remember last week when I said the wife will come along to the husband and say, you're so strong. Can you help me? And, you know, rubs his shoulder and I am strong, aren't I? Yeah, it is strong. And he starts to believe it, that type of thing. Or, or the man, the husband says, you look good. You know, something like that because maybe he wants something out of the woman, right? Now, those types of things, I'm not going to categorize all of those in the strict form of flattery. There's a lot of the friendly banter that goes back and forth. And that makes the spice in life, right? You can do that. But if the woman wanted the husband to buy her a whole new wardrobe, oh, honey, I need some more clothes, and you're just so ruined, and you're so strong. You see how it works? You have so much money. You know, something like that. She bats her eyes and she gets what she wants. Usually, sometimes not, but usually. You know, it's just a deceptive world and we need to be aware of it. We need not to participate it, not be like the Pharisees and the Herodians trying to trap somebody to do our will. If you have something you want done, just ask. That's all you have to do. And ladies, don't expect that your man is going to know exactly what you want. I don't know if you've seen some of those memes that are out there. One of the women, uh, this woman, she says, I wonder what he's thinking about. I, I bet he's thinking about women. And then you see the caption of the guy. I wonder if Luke knew earlier that Darth Vader was really his dad. You know, and that's what, and that's what he's thinking about. But the woman's thinking, no, he's thinking about this or that. And, you know, the guys, we don't think like women. And, and so when it comes to praise or specific action, you know, that's, that's what you're directing it at. Like somebody did a job well, you say, good job. You really did that well. And if you don't ask for anything else, well, strictly praise directed at the person, build them up in encouragement. That, that is all good to do that. Where flattery is adulation without cause. You just walk up. You have nothing to do with the person. Don't comment about anything that they did. You look, oh, that suit looks good on you. You know, something like that. We want to make sure we're avoiding that type of speech, that flattery. Flattery is evil and embellishment is its cousin. You know what embellishment is, right? You, you make it seem bigger than it actually is, or it was a lot more fun than it actually was. This is a case on social media, and that's why people get the FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. You know, they see something going on. I want to do that. And wow, it looks so great. It looks so wonderful. And the pictures make it look so grand and great, but... They didn't talk about on their trip how they were sick for three days because they ate the food at a particular restaurant. You know, it's all that stuff, fear of missing out. We we want something, we want this aggrandized life, and we portray something that isn't really true. We don't give the normal view of life. So that's this idea of fallacies and flattery. 
we're to just let our yes be yes and our no be no, communicate clearly in a lucid fashion, and that's God's will for us. Now going on, verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So the, the lesson, right on top here, the lesson is, we're to pay our taxes. We don't like to pay taxes, but you know, death and taxes, those two things, they're going to happen, and if you don't pay them, you're either going to be thrown in jail, you're going to lose all your ha- you, you have. And by the way, you do get eternal life, but death is still going to happen to us physically should the Lord push off his, accom- or his return here to the earth. Now, have we paid, the question, it begs the question, have we paid to God what is his? And you might ask, well, what do I owe God? That's the word. We owe him everything. Now, from there, you do some self-reflection. Do we really give him everything? Do we say, you got it, God, whatever you want. Yes, okay, yes. And you don't say no. The people who say no all the time, they can be depressed. They can have a low view of themselves. They even make movies about this, you know. Just say yes. And you say yes to everything that's out there. And if you say yes things that aren't evil, all right, or sinful. You just say yes to everything. You walk through the open door, and your life is so much more exciting, especially when you pray about everything and God directs. And so do we give God everything? For instance, if he asks us to pray, do we pray? If he asks us to give, do we give? If he asks us to serve, do we serve? If he asks us to fellowship, do we fellowship? If he asks us to sacrifice, do we sacrifice? Now, you know these are all rhetorical questions. Does God want you to pray? I'm, I don't know if you're sure. You, you see the point? Absolutely he wants us to pray. There's no question about it. Does he want us to give? Whether to the church or to an individual that we know? Absolutely he does. Do we have to say, well, let me pray about it. How often, if somebody asks you for money, how often are you supposed to turn them down? Scripture says never. Never at all. Anybody have five bucks I can use? (laughs) You get the picture. Somebody who's in need and they want some money and they come to you and say, hey, can I have some money? And then there's this homeless thing, you know, I think you already know how I feel about all that. But somebody who's truly in need and they need some money, if we have the money, we're supposed to give it to them or to serve. Do you think God wants every single person in the body of Christ to serve? Is it really a question? Of course he does. He, he says he is prepared for us, works in advance for us to do. And when were those works planned out? Before anything was ever created. He had that completely worked out. So it's not if we serve, if we give, if we pray, if we fellowship. For instance, fellowship. Should we be involved in something other than just Sunday morning? Absolutely. 
you know, the first century church, do you know how many days of the week they met? Every day. Now, if you said that today, like, every day? You, you want me to show up every day to church? and fe- oh, Come on. Isn't that a little much? Isn't that a little, like, overboard? Like you have an addiction there and you've got to work with the addiction? What's, what's the deal with that? But see, who are we? We compartmentalize because we have so much wealth in this country. We simply say, well, I have, I have a lot to do. You know, I, I need to go to service at this particular time during the week so I can not experience FOMO on the weekend because it's Labor Day weekend and I, I need to be there. Not that you can't take a vacation on Labor Day, but do you understand what I'm saying? We plan our lives around us rather than around God. And God wants us to have him in the middle. And we disappear. So... Render to God what is God's. We owe God everything. And then we have the Sadducees here. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. My question is, what is she feeding these guys? I mean, they're like all dead in this hypothetical. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, I love how he replies. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. First, they were amazed. Now they're astonished. So when we get to heaven, I've had this question several times. Will we be married in heaven? Well, the definitive answer in this chapter 22 and also Luke chapter 20 is no. We will not be married to each other in heaven. If we were, we'd be committing adultery because we are married to Jesus Christ. We are his bride. We cannot be faithful to another and be faithful to Jesus at the same time. We belong exclusively to him. And so there's some type of fogginess of what our relationship is going to be like. We are his. We are his family. We are the children of God. We get glorified. We get to sit on the throne with Jesus Christ. He promised this to us because we'll have the new nature. We will not make false or bad judgments of any kind. All of that will be completely removed. But there are people here, and you know them, the friends and family members that are Mormons, they have the temples scattered around the world that they might go in and be sealed for all of eternity, that when they die, they get to go to their own planet and they're going to be married to whomever they were sealed with on this earth in the temple ceremony, which incidentally, we are not permitted as believers and not uh, Mormons or of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, to go because we are considered unclean in the eyes of 
of the Latter-day Saints. But they believe that they'll go to their planet and their children will be there with them. My only problem is, well, when their children have children have children, do they go to another planet or do they go to that planet? You're going to be with your parents forever. It, it, you know, it, it just kind of gets mixed up a little bit. And then you have the idea of, well, hold on a second. If Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. I actually once asked a Mormon this on a fishing boat. We got in a conversation. I like to get in a spiritual conversation when we're fishing. You know, Jesus walked on water. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, and you know, he pulled up a fish that had a coin in his mouth. I'm hoping, you know, you, you do something like that. And, and then they say, well, you go to church? Yeah, you go to church. Yeah, I'm a Mormon. I'm a Latter-day Saint. Oh, hey, I have a question. And I asked this guy. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 said that there is no marriage in heaven. You guys have these temples in order to seal somebody for the celestial kingdom, not the terrestrial or the telestial, but the celestial kingdom where it's the highest form in heaven. And I said, but Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. But yet Joseph Smith taught there's marriage in heaven. Who should I believe? Joseph Smith or Jesus Christ? They both can't be right. So which would you choose by default? And, you know, I've actually twice to two different Mormons. This is their response. That's a good question. Because they don't have a response on something like that. And, you know, the Mormons, I know some Mormons, beautiful people. They really are. They, they're moral in their outlook. They try to do what's right. They're family-oriented. I mean, all things that we should be emulating as well. But they believe in a different Jesus. I've used this phrase before. This is what they believe. As God once was, man now is. As God now is, man may become. That's their phrase. So they are polytheistic. That everybody can become a God. And how many gods are there? There's one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. There is only one God. And so... When we look at these guys, well, the Sadducees, why were they asking this question? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed in total annihilation or soul sleep, supposedly. That's what they frame it as. Now, there are differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. If you went to Israel in the time of Jesus, you would have the Essenes, you would have the Zealots, you would have the Herodians, you would have the Sadducees, you would have the Pharisees. I mean, just these groups of different people, and they were all after different things. And of course, here we see them coming together to oppose Jesus, but they both had political power. They were both members of the 70 member Supreme Court, which was called the Sanhedrin. Some people say it was all. Sadducees, some people say it was all Pharisees. Some people say, no, it was a mixture of both. We really don't know at that particular time, but it, common sense would make you think that it's probably a mixture of both at that time. So they had political power. They were the Supreme Court that would meet and they would decide, especially capital, uh, capital crimes. Now, the interpretation of Scripture, the Sadducees, they insisted on a literal interpretation of Scripture. One mark for the Sadducees, literal interpretation of Scripture. That's great. Where the Pharisees, they gave the oral tradition equal weight with the Scripture. So whatever a previous rabbi would write, 
they'd say, well, that's just as weighty as the scripture because he was inspired by God. And so on that one, I would go with the Sadducees and not the Pharisees. We're not to add anything to God's word. It says that in scripture four different times, the last time in the book of Revelation. And then the resurrection, the Sadducees rejected the belief in the resurrection of the dead. Hence the question, well, whose wife will she be? You err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. But the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. Remember Paul used this against them? When he showed up to a meeting with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the high priest was there. And he goes, brothers, I'm only on trial because my belief, my hope in the resurrection. And the Pharisees go, here, here. And the Sadducees goes, no. Oh, and a, a fight broke out between them. Smart guy. He probably said that. And he, okay, I'm going to sit down now. And he just let them argue back and forth over this idea of the resurrection. They also, this total annihilation that I just talked about, the Sadducees deny that there is an afterlife. They hold that the soul perishes after death. It's like you go to sleep and you don't dream. It's all done and you never wake up. Where the Pharisees believed in the afterlife and in appropriate reward and punishment of individuals afterwards. So the Pharisees, they get one. You know, so you have the Sadducees on one side, you have the Pharisees on the other. And then the spiritual realm, the Sadducees rejected the idea of the unseen, the spiritual world, angels and demons and all of that. The Pharisees taught the existence of angels and demons in the spiritual realm. And so, again, the Pharisees, well, they get that one. Two for one is what we got. And then this idea of status. The Sadducees were the ruling monarchy. They were like the kings is who they were. Royalty is what they considered themselves. And the Pharisees were thought to be for the common individual, the populist type uh, Pharisee that would be there. And they were, they were popular with the people, and they were also democratic. Well, let's take a vote on that. And the Sadducees were not democratic at all. They would just say, this is the way it's going to be. I said it. That settles it. We're done is the way that they would look at it. So they would have this tension always between them. Well, the resurrection, certainly it takes place. Scripture tells us the resurrection chapter is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if there is no resurrection, we believe in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read it to you from verse 12 to 19. It says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then how are then not even Christ has been raised? And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, if there is no resurrection, we have believed the biggest lie for all time, and we're wasting our time. We ought to head to the beach, have a hootenanny down there, and just live life to the fullest in the sinful nature. Because if there is no resurrection, we're all done. That's why the Sadducees were so corrupt. Oh, there's no judgment afterwards. You just fall asleep. You see how really bad 
this idea of total annihilation is, we're all going to be resurrected. I promise you, when we get to heaven, we're going to see each other. And we're going to go, Bill! No, my name is not Bill. I got a new name now. Because we're all getting a new name. And guess what? You'll know my new name. And I'll know your new name. And I'll know everything about you. And you'll know everything about me. And you won't say, I don't know, shitty character. No, you're not going to say that. Oh, he's full of light, is what you're going to say. It's going to be a fantastic existence, and that's where we're going, those of us who believe in Christ. If we don't believe in Christ, it's alone, it's dark, it's punishing. And I would say silent, but it's not going to be silent. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of that. And you, you know the um, doctrine on that. So there were some flaws uh, in the Pharisaical religion. We, we understand this. Uh, they believed in confession and works without having submission of their own hearts. In other words, people who go forward at a crusade, they say, I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and therefore I am saved. And let me go do a few good works. But their heart is never turned over to Christ. And Christ wants our heart. He wants the circumcised heart. He wants the heart that is laid bare before him. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering. He wants it. He will take our burdens in this particular case. But the Pharisees did not believe that. They thought, since I'm a child of Abraham, and since I have done these good works, and I believe in God, therefore I'm going to heaven. And that's a fallacy. If he doesn't have our heart, he doesn't have us. And so that's where the encouragement is, like, fall on the rock and be broken. Otherwise, the rock will fall on you or me and crush us if we don't admit our sinfulness and ask him to save us. And he is so willing. He will in no wise cast anyone out. Those who come to him, not one person will be lost. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, let me read this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. In other words, everything they taught was pretty much right on. And Jesus said, do everything they tell you to do or that they teach you, but do not act like they act. That is detestable. And that's where he goes into chapter 23 and he pronounces all of these woes. Now, not all Pharisees, we're in this group which Jesus condemns. Joseph of Arimathea was thought to be a Pharisee by most. He was a member of the Sanhedrin and also Nicodemus. They were thought to be Pharisees, and they certainly wouldn't be like the Pharisees who were constantly challenging him. And if you remember, Nicodemus came in John chapter 3 and questioned him about heaven, and he didn't know what being born again was. Then there's the history of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You know, how did these guys ever come about? You know, we have different movements inside the Christian church, and we get different denominations. How many denominations do we have now? You have the Baptists, you have the Anabaptists, you have the Brethren Church, you have the, which is the uh, Quakers, and, and then you have the Presbyterians, and you have the Catholics, and then you have the Calvary Chapelites, which is great. And then you have the, uh, the, the other Episcopalians. We have all of these different factions which are out there, 
And how do they arise? Well, usually they arose through a doctrinal difference. But in the case of the Pharisees here, they arose when Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC took the Jews into captivity. They no longer had a temple. And so how do you get people doing what God's will is? Well, first you'd go to the book and you'd search that. And there were people who are experts in the law, in the Torah, and they would look in there to find answers. And those people, they ended up being the ones who would set themselves apart. They would be the ones who would be in the word, the rabbis, teachers of the law. And so there would be this group that came into being called the ones that are, quote unquote, set apart. The pirushim is what they were known as, the plural form of the word. And so they set themselves apart and they became known as the Pharisees, experts in the law. And they taught everyone out of the book. And they developed these meeting places called synagogues. And that happened back in the 6th century. And so we, we want to make 6th century BC. So we want to make sure that uh, we understand the synagogue was not something that God commanded. It's something that they made up and then they followed the law like the sacrifice. They don't have the sacrifices anymore. And so therefore they would say, well, do a good deed and give a little money, you know, something like that. That'll substitute. And so they came up with that. And that's the tradition that came down through the Pharisees. And so they made things up going along. But when they rebuild the temple, and we know it's going to be rebuilt, they will pick back up that sacrifice. And when that happens, I tell you, the Jews around the world are just going to have a heyday. People are going to flock to Israel like never before. And of course, we know that the Antichrist is going to be the one who institutes this. And Jesus condemned them because they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long, is what he said. Now, if you go to Israel or if you go to a Jewish synagogue today, you will find this little box with leather straps on it. Yeah, and they they will put it on the head of the individual and they will wrap these leather straps around it and then they put them on the back of their hands as well and there's a, this elaborate ceremony they go through where they wrap these things all the way up the arms and you have this this box here and this box here and that's because in the old testament god said keep the word of god on your mind in your hand you know make sure you understand what it is and so okay Let's do that. And so there's little scriptures in these boxes, and that's what they have. And you go to the Western Wall, and you'll see a, a, like a Hasidic Jew, and he has his prayer shawl on, and these tassels are hanging off this side and off that side. And if you were a really good Pharisee during the time of Jesus Christ, you had really long tassels. And you, woo, you know, they slip, slip around, and they would fly out. No, he's spiritual. He's got the long tassels. And the phylacteries are going to big box up here not just a little two inch by two inch box and that's what they thought would make them more spiritual and that's what jesus said they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long and and so they thought that's what makes you spiritual it'd be the equivalent of if somebody decided to wear a suit here to church which is okay it's wonderful but if the person is wearing it, a man shows up in a suit, if he's wearing it because it's more spiritual, he's deceiving himself. God doesn't look at the suit. Oh, 
You are so good. You're such a spiritual man. He doesn't do that. Or the women who wear a dress as opposed to pants, you know, because the Old Testament says a woman is not to be found in the attire of a man. That means pants are out for women. Let's move on. (laughs) Just kidding. That's not what Scripture says. That's not what it actually teaches. But it's this idea of a woman acting like a man or a man acting like a woman that that's not supposed to be the case. And so people make things up when it comes to scripture. They want to believe certain things and they don't hold to what it has to say. And so their phylacteries, they would put those on. They love the best seats in the synagogues, the banquet tables. Everything they do is to be seen by men. Uh, doing good works for others so that they will be impressed instead of doing works that God would see and only God or praying on the street corners, you know, making a big deal about praying on the street corners. Uh, and sometimes Christians do that today and I can't judge their motives doing that or not doing that, but they would do that to be seen by men. So people would think that they were in fact spiritual now and i'm right in the middle of this and we're going to be receiving communion this morning so i'm going to make sure that i pick it up back in verse 34 for the next time this is where we have uh jesus uh when he silenced the sadducees and the pharisees they they got together and they plotted against jesus but we're going to receive communion now just a few words about communion communion is something we do as far as remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, those who are believers participate in receiving the elements, the cup and the bread. And, of course, we know on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my covenant. And he told his disciples to take and drink it. And he said, the bread, he said, this is my body. And he encouraged everyone to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And, of course, that was symbolic, but a lot of the disciples that he had were offended, and most of them left when he said that. And so what we're doing by taking the elements here is the blood that Jesus shed is a remembrance for us by taking the juice, which is here. And also the bread is a remembrance for us how Jesus gave his actual body, because Jesus is the bread of life. And when we're... uh, getting ready to receive this, what we do is we turn to God and we ask for forgiveness of any sins that we need to ask forgiveness for. Uh, We give him thanks for the blessing of salvation. And this all takes place when it's being passed out and we're holding on uh, to the elements. That's a good time to be reflecting on all of our own personal lives as well as asking God to assist us and walking the walk. And so that's what communion is all about. For those who aren't saved, it's meaningless. There's no purpose in it whatsoever. You're not really remembering the blood and the body of Christ because the sacrifice was not meritorious for the individual who's not saved. So we want to make sure we're saved and we get to go to heaven just as I described earlier. And of course, you know, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that we have to confess Jesus is Lord and believe. God wants our heart not just our action and our confession. So at this time, if the worship team would come up, we're going to go ahead and sing a song here, and they'll dim the lights in the middle and uh, just reflect a little bit on your lives and cry out to God if you need to.